0: this data-driven conversation is brought to you by indicative the leading behavioral analytics platform that empowers marketing and product teams to understand their customers full journeys start deciding by data by going to indicative.com Listening to Deciding by Data, the podcast that brings you into the C-suite to learn how data drives successful businesses. I'm Lauren Finer, and your host is Jeremy Levy. Today on the show, we explore the future of work. We sat down with Catherine Minshew, the co-founder and CEO of The Muse. The Muse is a careers platform that lets candidates peek into companies before they apply through photos and videos. Companies pay to have profiles on the Muse so they can stand out from competitors on text-heavy job boards and to source candidates who understand their values before they step through the door. We asked Catherine, can data help you find your dream job? What even is a dream job? And what happens when life no longer centers on being employed?
1: We all had that childhood friend who seemed to know exactly what they wanted to do with their life. There's the captain of the debate team who wanted to be a lawyer since age five, or the science nerd who knew everything about marine biology. But if you were to meet that friend decades later, would they be doing the job you expected? Take Catherine Minshew, the co-founder and CEO of the careers platform, The Muse. If you met Catherine at age 18 and asked her what she wanted to be when she grew up, she'd probably say something like, become a diplomat or work somewhere in foreign service. But become a CEO of a company? Absolutely
2: not. It's funny, actually. My my dad still teases me because... When I was a either late teenager or early 20s, we were having lunch, and at one point I stood up, and in that very dramatic way, I was like, don't you know I hate
1: business? After working for the U.S. State Department in Nicosia, Cyprus, and dreading the slow pace of government, Catherine took a role at the prestigious consulting firm McKinsey & Company after graduation. A couple years later, Catherine was in her mid-20s working as a management consultant and thinking to herself,
2: How did I get here? How do you know what a company's like before you apply?
1: Classic millennial, right? But really, Catherine was asking a question that so many of her peers were wondering too. And sure, previous generations did just fine dropping their cover letters in a mailbox and hoping it got a response. But we're talking about a generation that has never rented an apartment without seeing pictures inside or even experienced a truly blind date. And in a job seeker's market, there are just so many options. So, in true millennial fashion, when Catherine decided to make a major career change, she first tested the waters.
2: I was both interested in entrepreneurship, but also in global health and uh, international aid. And I thought, well, I can do one of those things for six months, not the other. So I took a, a six-month job that would let me live in Africa. It was a great experience. But when I came back, I was really committed to diving in and, and starting a, a business.
1: When she got back to the U.S. from Rwanda and Malawi, Catherine was still wrestling with this question of how can you know what you want to do with your life? How can you find a career that truly suits the lifestyle you want at this specific point in time? Catherine created The Muse in 2011 to begin to answer these questions. The Muse has taken an approach that blends data with authentic humanized content. So you go to a standard job board like Indeed or Monster and you pretty much know what to expect. You see the job titles first, and then the company name and a job description. All this on a very plain, text-heavy page. When Catherine looked at these sites earlier in her career, she thought there has to be a better way.
2: You know, most of the job search sites that came before us focused on quantity over quality. They were very functional tools. They might help you organize your job search or give you a list of, you know, 3,728 responses to a query about what jobs you were looking for. But there was nothing about... What is the company's culture and environment like? I mean, it sounds so silly, but we were one of the first people to say, as an organization, you should put pictures of your actual office and your actual employees on the internet instead of stock photos, right? That is just 101 level stuff. And yet nobody had brought that to the career space. It was, again, it was a very, I keep going back to the phrase transactional. It was a space that was focused on utility and getting results, but not about providing people the context and the information to make trade offs and decisions between them. And I remember thinking, You know, at one point I was online shopping, and I was looking at just uh, all of the care and attention and and money that companies were pouring into the listing pages for whatever it was that I was looking at buying. You could read product reviews. You could see them from different angles. And I clicked on the career site for that company, and it was just awful. There There was none of the same care selling their employment opportunities, their careers, their business culture. And to me, it just seemed obvious. I think there was a utility to being so naive and fairly young because we didn't realize that there were so many other players in the space. Of course, we looked at LinkedIn, Indeed, Monster, the big ones, but um, I had no idea what we were sort of diving into. And in some ways that was helpful because it just seemed incredibly apparent to me that the way it was being done was not enough. It was not right. And that with some care and attention to company culture, to context and personality of different employers and different career paths, we could create something much better.
1: So with the other job sites that you mentioned, is it more of a volume game? And then as the candidate, it's my responsibility to go look at social, look at a website, stock photos, amongst other things to try to figure out what is the culture that I'm applying to beyond just pray and pray from a job perspective?
2: So part of it is that the entire market has changed, right? You've been out of a recession period for a while now, um, since you know 2009, 2010, 2011. People differ on when the recession ended, but the market for talent has never been hotter. And so that means that if you're a very talented salesperson or engineer or operator, you have more options. And so instead of just looking for a job and a paycheck, a lot of talent is looking for the right fit. They want to find purpose. They want to find meaning. They want to find, um, you know, a fulfilling work environment. And so that's up to the game on what companies are expected to provide. At the same time, you know, if you look at what the HR profession was characterized by, you know, 10 or 20 years ago, people would regularly talk about filling roles as getting butts in seats. And the metrics that a lot of HR professionals were judged on were, you know, how fast and how cheap can you make a hire? How many clicks did you get on your job ad? Those aren't metrics that. Lead people towards thinking about quality and fit. It's very much um, it's a volume game. Exactly. It's it's how many applicants can you get? How fast can you move people through? And there's been a lot of really interesting research that has changed the way the entire industry is thinking. One is simply that companies are starting to realize the impact of a really good hire is substantially more than the impact of a just good enough hire. So that obviously means that it's easier to dedicate more resources to finding great people. Two companies are starting to look at the bottom line impact of retention. When you hire people and then you lose them in three months or six months, you're actually losing a tremendous amount of money that if you were more honest um, and authentic up front, you could potentially have saved by only attracting people that want what you're offering. And then there's also just been some fascinating research coming out about candidate experience, about how important it is to treat applicants to your company well, because ultimately many of them are your customers. Just one, you know, fun statistic there, 44% of people who have a negative experience applying to a company say they will sever their business relationship with that organization. And there have been follow-up studies that prove people will stop buying your product. They will tell their friends and family not to go work for you. And so it's just changing the game in terms of how companies are thinking. They have to approach recruiting candidates And likewise, I think individuals are really raising the bar on what they expect.
1: How much of that is a factor of the fact that unemployment is at, a, I think, a 17-year low? Is it because there's such demand for talent now that potential candidates can be very selective about where they want to work?
2: You know, it's certainly a huge factor. Um, I think that said, if we saw a big change tomorrow and the market shifted towards more of an employer's market... I still think the best people, you know, you can't really put that genie back in the bottle. The best people are going to say, wait a second, this is an equal partnership. I'm giving you 40, 50, 60 hours per week of my life, and I want you to treat me well. I want you to sell me in the same way I'm going to sell you. So I'm not sure that um, this trend of interviews becoming a two-way street and companies needing to compete for candidates just in the same way that candidates have always competed for the roles. I don't know if that trend's going in full-scale reverse anytime soon.
1: While the relationship between an employer and employee may be a partnership, Catherine says the idea of a career soulmate is a myth. What is the perfect candidate or the perfect job? Like, what does that concept even mean? So I
2: actually don't believe in it. Um, I think that there can be the right job for you, but I'm a big believer in fit or alignment as a concept. And this is kind of like, I mean, could you? Yes, exactly. I was literally just going to say, could you describe like the perfect man or the perfect woman? I mean, sort of, but, but that person wouldn't be an actual human. What you need to do as an individual is you need to find the right partner for you. And I believe the same thing is true of a career and a job when you're very early in your career, you might prioritize learning a tremendous amount. You might be okay with a lack of work-life balance or a highly structured environment where you're not given a lot of latitude to make your own decisions because that's the trade-off. That's the right for you, the right thing for you at that point in your life. Later on, I think that you may make different choices and that doesn't make one of those choices good or bad. It's one of the reasons why I tend to be frustrated by the trend in the past few years to rate companies according to these sort of vertical star scales. Because again, your two-star experience might be someone else's five-star experience. I do think that there are some things that are just objectively better or worse in terms of work experience, but many, many things are a matter of preference, of fit. And my goal with the Muse is to create a platform and an experience where individuals and organizations can find that alignment.
1: How do you even quantify those factors?
2: So it's not easy to do. I will, <laughs> I will say that up front. Um, I think that there's there's the pre and the post version. In terms of how do you quantify that you've done it, we're looking at retention a lot right now. Not necessarily long-term retention, although ultimately, of course, when you start a new job or when a company makes a hire, they're hoping that person will stay for two, three, four, five years but even just the first six months.
1: So how does that feedback loop work? Do do companies tell the muse when someone gets fired, or laid off, or leaves? I mean, how, how does that work? So we don't do this across
2: all of our companies right now. We have 700 companies. And um, for anyone who's spent time in HR data systems, there's a lot of issues right now with different systems talking to each other on a reliable basis. So we can get it on a spot basis from individual companies. And then we actually can survey our user base because we have so many individual consumers that are very active, We've also looked at it in terms of early on when we were just trying to prove if this was a good hypothesis to follow. We actually looked at the LinkedIn profiles of the subset of people that we knew had been hired through the site and saw how long till they were promoted, how long till they were left the company, you know, what inferences can we make about their career path? But is that something then... that you're
1: doing on an ongoing basis now? I mean, I, I love this idea of like, I like the dating analog, right? It's like finding the perfect match for someone, but it requires, I feel like, a lot of information in terms of understanding the efficacy because everybody's different. Like, can you maintain that? Can you continue to build that profile of what a good match is?
2: I believe it's possible to do better than we're all doing today. I don't know that an algorithm is ever going to find your spouse, and I, I'm not sure that we'll ever be able to build the perfect career genie, but I do think there's a huge amount of room for improvement. We're looking right now at, um, we already are able to get some data from various applicant tracking systems, which usually stop when a hire is made. That gives us a sense of how people are progressing through the application and interview process, but then we're also looking at how we get data consistently from essentially HR management systems that contain things around employee tenure, performance. That's obviously very sensitive data, and so that's one of the questions for us is, you know, do we, how can we make sure that we are having access to that on a regular basis in a way that's not crossing any privacy lines? I also think that when we're looking at the different factors that lead people to choose one career over another, we're starting, and we're very early in this, but we're starting to pay attention to are there factors that seem to both drive decisions, but ultimately I want to look at what, what's, what leads to that long-term success. Because just because you take that job that sounds really sexy and has great perks, you know, if you leave in six months, have you really done the right thing for yourself or for that employer?
1: Do employees or even prospective employers know what they're looking for? Like, I would imagine that if I was new to the workplace, I wouldn't even have enough experience to know what type of job I'm looking for.
2: <laughs> That's a huge problem. In fact, we have a diagram that we often use internally at the Muse. Uh, and in the middle is career alignment or fit, getting those two sides together. Um, but on either side with individuals and organizations, we have questions like, how do I know what I want? How do I know what I what I can offer? It's it's a huge issue. And for employers, we made an acquisition last summer um, of a company called Brandamper. We call it Brand Builder now internally. And it's this fascinating tool because it lets us go into the employee bases of of our company partners and source a tremendous amount of data and content about what their experience is working at the company. So
1: wait, that means that you can connect to their HR systems around their experience at the employer? Did I understand that correctly? So
2: we have a separate tool. It doesn't plug into their existing systems, but we partner with the company to send out, usually via email, uh, a link that is, uh, is a unique link for every single employee that leads to the Brand Builder tool on the Muse's servers. And what it does is it almost serves like a Mad Libs for the individual. They're answering some questions about who they are, what they do, why they love it, how they experience the company. The output of it for the employee is sort of summary, like mine's on my LinkedIn profile, you know, anything that you might need or anywhere that you might need to put a summary that says, who am I and what do I care about? But on the back end, what's really interesting for the talent teams and the leadership of these companies is they can see what were the attributes and adjectives that they thought described their company the best versus what did their employees choose to describe the company? How did engagement and responsiveness and also selection of these different cultural attributes, how did that differ across different functions or offices or types of people at your company? And then you get access to a lot of this raw content about how your employees would describe what it's like to work here. And I think that there is a gap at a lot of companies between what they think is the truth about their employee experience and what's actually the truth. And so we are aiming to provide more of a grounding in data as well as in content. Um, I think data is both the numbers and the insights, but also sometimes the stories and the anecdotes, especially in aggregate, that help make a picture of what is it like to work here. And we want that to be a more honest and authentic one.
0: We're going to take a short break, but when we return, You'll hear from Catherine about how automation could impact the MUSE and what it might mean for the future of employment. Stay tuned. This
2: podcast is brought to you by Indicative, the leading behavioral analytics platform that allows business users to optimize acquisition, engagement, and retention. Indicative enables marketing and product teams to do sophisticated behavioral analysis across all of their customers' digital touchpoints without the need to rely on data scientists. To learn more, go to indicative.com or email info at indicative.com.
0: Welcome back to Deciding by Data. We're talking with Katherine Minshew, co-founder and CEO of careers platform The Muse. Catherine told us that the muse is focused on the human element in career matching, despite a lot of hype around artificial intelligence. She explained why she's skeptical about algorithmic matching because she hasn't really seen one do it well, at least not yet. She's concerned that AI might take away from the humanistic element of recruiting.
1: Before we started taping, we also chatted very briefly about the AI aspect and you had a great comment, which was your focus is more on the individual, on the, on the individual people at what role is there for AI in the job space?
2: Yeah, you know, I think that there are a lot of things that AI can do better than humans right now, such as answering simple questions from people who are being interviewed, you know, giving you information about where do you need to be, when, who will you be speaking with? At the same time, I've been a little troubled by this trend that has popped up in a few recruitment companies to automate everything. And that's kind of what we were talking about before, which is, you know, I am a big believer that part of what's been a positive development in the entire talent ecosystem in the last decade is this movement away from being highly transactional and just processing candidates as if they were numbers or resumes and towards thinking about how do we get the right fit? How do we treat people? Even if it's at scale, how do we treat people well? And um, some of the AI companies that I've seen, I think, blur that line a little bit. So I would say that, you know, if you want to hire really talented people that are competitive um, and you want to get them to your business away from your competitors, giving them a bot to talk to when they're trying to really engage with a human is probably not going to be a winning strategy. Because if that other company gives them a human, that makes a huge difference to candidates. They want to feel respected and valued because they are a human investing their time At the same time, I think there's a lot of ways with, you know, be it interview scheduling. There's some great AI and kind of bots that are helping to just automate that, which is a fairly thankless task on both sides. There's some really interesting work being done around just helping people get access to the information that they need without having, you know, a human to have to go and pull it for them. But I do think that the smart companies, in my opinion, are thinking about where are the areas where that personal individual touch really matters. Let's double down on those. And what are all the other things we can do?
1: But is there an opportunity for ai in this space i mean the scheduling is interesting um but it's sort of it's sort of more procedural than it is helping to find that best match and i wonder you know maybe the data doesn't exist today to fully understand this but in the future will the data exist and can there be an algorithm that can at least help narrow down that process not necessarily take the human out of it entirely but help you quantify and then Recommend jobs that would be culturally or in terms of your goals align more perfectly, and is that thing you're working on?
2: Yeah, no, it's it's um, it's very much a topic of discussion within the company. I'll, I'll leave it at that. But um, you know, it's interesting where I thought you were going because there are also a few companies trying to do this: is creating tools for employers to winnow the field. And I am just hesitant about that because. I feel like employers have had far too much of the power in the equation. And of course, I mean, we work with a lot of great employers. I want to empower them, but I also want them to meet candidates as if it's a two-way street. I'm much more interested and excited by the idea of helping an individual assess what is it that is going to be the best fit for them and then making those recommendations. So it's it's um, it's very much on the radar.
1: Catherine says The Muse tries to serve as a best practice advisor, but ultimately companies will attract the candidates they want by being true to themselves.
2: We try not to advise companies to do things that wouldn't be honest or authentic to who they are as employers. Uh, You know, my favorite anecdote on that front is that when the New York Times published that article about Amazon, that was very critical of many of their workplace uh, practices, applications to Amazon actually went up Mm -hmm. because a lot of people said that doesn't sound so bad to me. I'm in. Um, Other people looked at that and thought, I will never work there. And that's exactly that sort of polarity that I think you get at very strong cultures. It doesn't mean that I personally would want to work somewhere as long as I think that we can portray it in a way that some people would and would be happy with what they get. So we definitely hear from a lot of our employers that the quality of candidates has gone up. What's interesting is that they they measure quality in different ways in some cases based on what they're looking for. So for some companies, that does just mean that they feel like they're getting more highly qualified applicants based on the schools that they've gone to. For others, it's the applicants that are coming in the door really know what my company does, what our mission is. They seem very aligned with our values. They're on board with our ways of working. And I think that is sometimes really underappreciated. You know, there are, I think, at least six companies right now in the HR and talent space working on matching resumes or LinkedIn profiles to job descriptions. And it's all about hard skills. But I think that it's equally important to think about the type of work experience that you're creating. And again, we, we do that through a combination of data and content. But I think that that's an area where there's a huge amount of white space left to explore.
1: Catherine does see a place for the muse to play a role in shaping the future of the workplace and making work more fair. Taking a step back to look at the larger market, the muse sits at an interesting place in between employers and employees. And looking at things like, be it gender inequality at a company, unconscious bias from a hiring perspective, women make 80 cents on the dollar compared to men, do you see that the muse can help solve some of those problems because you sit at that intersection?
2: Yes, I would really love for us to play a big part in that. It's something that I'm very personally passionate about as well, having started my business at a time when it was not uncommon to go to technology events and see one or two women in the room for every 20 plus men. I think that we influence those issues in a few ways. First of all, we do try and act as best practice carriers and recommenders. You know, our account management team really developed very deep expertise in different types of company cultures, different types of employee advocacy groups um, in fighting discrimination, promoting inclusion and belonging. And they're very happy to work with a lot of our companies to help them think about what are the best practices. We don't do consulting, so we're not going to get in there and actually help you fix it, but we might refer you to someone who can or point you in the direction of people that are doing it really well. So that's one way. Secondly, it's, I think, very powerful to show what different career paths can look like for people across genders, races, backgrounds, because you, know, you can't be what you can't see. And so one of the things I'm also really proud of is we work very hard when we're spotlighting successful engineers, high-powered salespeople, entrepreneurs, leaders, to make sure that the people that we're showcasing are as diverse and fascinating and representative of what the world looks like in the 21st century. And I think that role modeling can be really important. Um, I do think it will be very interesting as we grow the muse to think about how we might be actually able to assess companies on some of these metrics. But it isn't something that we've been able to do yet. Again, because These are really complex issues.
1: Do they come to you sometimes and say, hey, these are things you want to change?
2: Absolutely. And I think partially it's because we work hard to do this ourselves. We speak a lot publicly as a company and as a lot of individuals at the company about more inclusion, more equality, more diversity across both the technology industry and other industries. I think for us, we have a lot of tools and ways to help companies with hiring strategies that might focus on bringing in more diverse hires. But we try and make sure that it's genuine. You know, just trying to bring in diversity as as sort of window dressing is not going to be very effective, Um, not only because, you know, you won't be able to keep those people if you don't provide a really inclusive, positive experience, but also because candidates have lots of ways of back-channeling, whether you're serious about what you say. You know, lying in the recruitment market is not anywhere near as effective as it used to be, and, and we just... Pretty much, try not to work with you, it. That's uh,
1: a tactic that you tell companies not to do. <laughs> yes, we are
2: very, very forceful about uh, all the reasons why that's not only a losing tactic, yeah. but if they're interested in doing it, they should go somewhere else. So that's that's really big for me. But um, you know, I do think that a lot of companies that haven't historically been as strong at diversity and inclusion in the past are starting to wake up to the need to do something about it. And I think the best ones are the ones that are honest about that and they go to the market and say, look. We have not always been great at this, but we really want to do better. We want to bring people in who will help us change. And we're going to meet you more than halfway and do that change as well. Because if you try and pretend like you're a diversity and inclusion pro and you're not, that's just going to backfire. And again, it's not authentic. It's not honest. You need to bring that message that is is accurate and that will resonate. And you will find people who want to get on board with helping be the change. And that, I think, can be the, the first step for a lot of those companies.
1: Let's say the Muse perfects the career matching algorithm and solves our job seeking problems. What happens when the very jobs the Muse is seeking to fill are taken over by machines?
2: I think when you look at history, most of the major technological advances that have threatened to wipe out employment have, in fact, increased employment, but for people that are willing to learn more skills, which is not always a positive fact, but does seem to be a pattern in history. And so I think one of the advantages that we personally will have as a as a business is most of the people who use the Muse are highly skilled workers. Many of them are at the beginning of their career. Our average user is about 30 years old right now on the individual side, but they more likely than not are the salespeople, operators, marketers, engineers, finance, biz dev. A lot of those positions are not likely to be automated away anytime soon, although aspects of those jobs may certainly be eaten by software. And so You know, I do think that the workplace will look massively different if we see even one-tenth of the innovation that's been promised. And personally, I'm very intrigued by a lot of the experiments being done on universal basic income because I think that giving people the latitude to support themselves in a variety of ways is going to be really important if we do see that sort of massive job loss. But I don't actually know if it will affect us quite as much as other sites. And when you look at the HR industry as well. There's historically been a divide between products and platforms and services that cater to hourly workers versus salaried. Uh, We fit very squarely in the latter camp, in the salaried camp. And so we're keeping a very close eye on it because it's going to affect the type of jobs, the competition for those jobs. But most of the jobs that I think will be in that first wave of possible automation are not currently listed on our platform anyway.
1: Do you think in our lifetimes that there will be a scenario where the purpose of society isn't around employment? It's about human growth or more leisure endeavors?
2: I think that humans are – many humans are somewhat competitive and the desire to have something that looks like work is fairly deep. Exactly, purpose. And so it may not be that in – 50 years, the majority of people are working a certain amount of time purely for their own sustenance. But I do think that once you establish a baseline, people still work for all of the things above the baseline. They work for prestige. They work for their families. They work for a luxury car or a vacation to Egypt or whatever it is. And so um, I certainly could be wrong about this. But my belief is that even though the way that employment uh, works may and, and probably will change dramatically, especially for positions that are at higher risk of being automated. I think that there will still be a core work-like engine that forms the basis for, for
0: 40 plus hours
1: a week for many, many people. So the muse has a bright future.
0: I, I sure hope so. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Deciding by Data.
1: This episode was produced and edited by Lauren Feiner.
0: And hosted by Jeremy Levy, the co-founder and CEO of Indicative.
1: Our music is by Chris Zabritsky and Boxcat Games. New episodes are released every two weeks. Tune in next time when we speak with Tad Martin, co-founder and CEO of Collective Eye. Collective Eye is a network of data that uses predictive analytics to help sales professionals do less busy work and more selling.
0: To learn how to make your company data-driven like the ones on our show, check out Indicative, the behavioral analytics company that makes this podcast possible. Indicative empowers marketing and product teams to do sophisticated behavioral analysis across all of their customers' digital touch points without having to rely on data teams. Start Deciding by Data today by going to Indicative.com. To stay up to date on the latest episodes and data news, sign up for our newsletter at DecidingByData.com or follow us on Twitter at DecidingByData.